Cinderella, funny fella, running amidst the trees. Who's there? I said as I stood in my head, and nobody answered me. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. This is Trav. And this is Jay bringing up the rear. Welcome again to the Fringeworthy Podcast. Thank you for joining us this week and every week for the Fringeworthy Podcast, where we explore strange new worlds and sometimes strange versions of our own world. Tonight, we are going to be going back into our series of exploring in different parts in time, and we're going back into the far past. This is the time period of the 5th through the 11th century. We have split up the world into various cultures, and various hosts are going to be telling you what we've been able to find out. Yeah. One of the things that the Arabs did was they did encourage trade of both the illicit mercantile kind of trade and the illicit slaves and piracy. If it was turning over a buck, they were kind of good for it. And so that's part of why they grew and came to dominate the classical world by the 11th to 12th century. Things to do. There are lost treasures to, to find. There are people who are doing nefarious things and there are people who want to stop them. And there are just a, a lot of things that you can do. During this period of time, Islam is really cosmopolitan and tolerant. As long as you pay your a fair share of the swag to the guys with swords, they're good with it. Travelers and explorers and merchants can go all around this particular area with the exceptions of Mecca and Medina. You get too close to there and you're asking to have your head cut off. Infidels are not allowed. However, from Beirut and Alexandria all the way out to Kabul and the Khyber Pass, they had people going all over the place and trading things for other things, and they were spreading the word of Islam far, far and wide. So I talked about the caliphate uh, a little bit, and I think that's more appropriate for, for this end of the thread. The early conflicts in Islam had to do with how they would choose who was the boss of all Islam, and that's where you get the Sunni and Shia split inside that religion, and it's still active today. Yes, I think having players get involved with the succession of the caliph and having an opinion about that, if you have a character who, who is Islamic, they may have strong feelings about it. Or uh, if you have players who want to get involved in on that level, but they could break things pretty badly, take more of a local level, because it's an empire, an overarching authority that rules over subsidiary kingdoms, city-states, and, and areas, uh, to take a smaller kingdom and, and try to make it an IDET-friendly place where other people may have different opinions about how that's supposed to go. You may uh, hook up with a sailor called Sinbad and just sail around the area, finding out what's there and mapping it out for IDET. 
just uh, depends on what, what the GM wants to have the PCs do. Usually a set problem with a set goal makes for a better adventure. And oh, I forgot to, to talk about the three points I wanted to lead off with. GMs have to make a decision when they're starting off with this kind of a game. You're going to go historically accurate okay, in terms of people's opinions. We, we discussed that one to death. You want to go historically accurate in regards to sanitation and, and disease. Uh, in the movies, uh, everybody's clean and they have good teeth. In reality, a lot of the cities of the ancient world would look like uh, sewage-filled shanty towns to us. A GM who wants to really show the nasty, brutish, and short face of history has a lot of opportunity there. But I don't know how much fun that would be. Personally, I tend to go for the uh, for the tanned people with blow-dried hair and good teeth image of the past that we see in <laughs> hey, movies. Hey, uh, but real, real quick, not, not to cut you off, it's, it's a good point. Nope. Um, I want to make the my understanding of of that part of the world through most of history, most of you know recorded history, what we know of. My understanding is the Persians were very clean, actually, compared to the rest of the world. Yeah, but how clean is that compared to people of today, especially people well, right. from a well-equipped Western city? Well, um, no, no, I know, I hear you, but I mean, they, they they actually bathed, and they you know they may not have brushed their teeth. I, I'm not sure they were keen on washing their hands and such. There's also issues of horses. A lot of people used horses and camels. Horses and camels leave byproducts behind. <laughs> it's nothing that's going to cause global warming, but it's going to cause global mud pits. And those can get pretty nasty and give rise to typhoid fever. As a GM, my particular bias is towards a more cinematic image of the past. Another understanding, too, is that the I think it's the, the plague, the Black Plague came out of Persia, didn't it? It actually came out of China. China, okay, but but it did go by way of Persia, didn't it? Well, yeah, along the trade routes and everything, yeah. Yeah, so. right, right. So, so, and it's during this time period because the plague hits Europe. Was it thirteen hundreds or, or thereabouts? So it was working its way across. If you're talking about, you know, around one thousand nine hundred, you're going to be hitting pockets of where you could run into plague. Now, you know, you're saying you could run your adventure very sanitary, and you could still do that with the plague. Of course, your players never get it. But you might be in areas where it is, and it could lead to adventure ideas. Yes, it could. People who they want to influence positively giving the uh, cure to the plague, which is actually pretty easy for modern technology. Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, You can invent lost treasures. You can invent people who need to be rescued. You can invent people who need to be stopped. And there are thrones all over the place, the ownership of which is in question. There are lots of adventure ideas. Our best source for adventure in the uh, Persian zone during our particular time is, in fact, Sinbad. And I was just reading a little bit about it, again, on Wikipedia. And as we said, it's not a perfect source. But apparently, Sir Richard Burton, the explorer, his writings of what he saw when he infiltrated the area about almost a thousand years after what we were talking about, about the 600, 700 years his is still the best resource we have for a lot of that literature. So there's another thing the uh, PCs might be sent after. Get samples of language, get samples of writing, get copies of scrolls. And I could take, you know, about a half step back onto Africa and say, library at Alexandria. Hello. Oh, oh per- yes. Oh, I forgot all about that. Oh, I feel bad. <laughs> I just, I okay, just we, came we've up covered with- that extensively. <laughs> yeah. Here's yeah. a digital camera. Go get it. You know? Yeah. 
Well, of course, we have a show it. on that. You can listen to our take on all of that already. Okay. All right. Anyway, and yeah, there are going to be arguments. Is an alternate uh, library to Alexandria of any historical value to Earth Prime? Oh, you can have all kinds of discussions like that, but mainly you want to kind of keep things moving and, and have uh, clearly identifiable goals when, when you're GMing an adventure here. So I'm thinking go to an island and rescue a princess in order to get a uh, king that we want to have on our side be a good guy. Or we hear tell that there's a lot of gold and jewels over here, or there's an ancient tomb and we want good records of that, that kind of thing. There's all kinds of adventure ideas and just all kinds of things you can do. Uh, again, hit Wikipedia, look it up. The principal idea here is to decide, do you want to actually address the issue of whether or not Islam is overall a good idea or a bad idea? And there's another hot button issue that may or may not be enjoyable for your players to explore. Just as enjoyable as is Christianity a good or a bad idea, too. Correct, correct. And again, if uh, you have somebody with strong opinions on either side or, ironically, heaven forbid, on both sides, could start fights and battles. As a GM, I prefer to approach Islam as kind of a, a historical force because that way I hopefully won't insult somebody who believes in Muhammad, you know? Right. John and Bruce covered a lot of that in the religion episode, didn't you guys? That was one of the ones I missed. Oh. I'm retreading old ground oh, here. No, no, it's, it's good to mention. It's okay. just if you want more information on where we went with this from a fringeworthy aspect, just, there's just another podcast where we went in-depth on that. I looked at the uh, Sassanid Empire, and I looked at the Caliphate, the adventures surrounding that. Uh, isn't this also the place of the 1001 Nights? Yes, that's exactly the work that Richard Burton got in the uh, early 1800s that he smuggled out and recorded. That's where we get Sinbad from. And that's where we get a lot of these stories from the Persian culture. Earlier writings did not survive very well. We don't have the pre-Arabic scholarship on it. You're listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. Lots of internal battles and wars towards the end towards the end of the caliphate, where it started to become the Ottoman Empire. This is further along in our timeline than we're aiming for. But uh, people called the Hulagu and the Malamuks began to uh, really take apart the caliphate. But uh, up until 1000, it was a powerful force. It was centered in modern-day Baghdad around Basra, but it ruled the same area as the Sassanid Empire. Travel was widespread. People could claim to be travelers as scholars or merchants from far distant lands and pretty much get away with it, unless, again, you were in an interior area that didn't see much travel. One adventure idea is uh, if a meller can take the place of the caliph, he oh. can mobilize a huge army in wiping out the infidels. So chasing a meller and trying to keep him off the caliphate's uh, throne might be a good long campaign idea there. We've always said that the Maller prefer to work from the shadows to be the power behind the throne. But if you're in a culture where a strong leader is the one making all the decisions, then a Maller is going to step up. And a Maller doesn't necessarily have to start an identity and work its way up. He can drop on the uh, caliph from yeah. above and eat him when nobody's looking. <laughs> then we've got troubles. And that starts with a capital T, and that does not rhyme with M. The 11th is the start of that favorite time in the Middle East in that area, the Crusades. Yeah. 
at that area, you'll get the actual uh, hero Saladin, who was a uh, Arabic general who fought the uh, Crusaders with a lot of success. He is the King Richard on the Islamic side of the Crusades. Yeah, right. And I'm thinking uh, travel for most of your dead people during that period of time, travel becomes a little more difficult then or more interesting. As difficult as it is for anybody else, you know, every long voyage begins turns into a quest because you're doing ships, sailborne sailing ships, you're doing horses, or you're walking. Well, I'm saying during the the Crusades, when you have infidels invading Mecca. um, Then traveling uh, becomes a scary, a scary prospect because you're liable to get attacked by anybody. Yeah. Especially if you decide to blend in with the locals, uh, either through cosmetics or through uh, other means, you now look like one of the locals, and here comes a guy looking to make his mark, and there you are. <laughs> right. Even if the locals make you as somebody who's not from there, then you're a spy, and then you get uh, beheaded too. Like I say, it's scary, and there's lots of ways to get killed in the in the middle of a uh, war like that. Yeah. Right, and just just so, imagine the adventure where, where you're stuck in the middle because your IDET team has come in, and they've made friends with the local population, and they're helping them with their irrigation and disease control, uh, and... Here come these crusaders. Yeah, here's the crusaders on one side, and there's the defenders, the the Islamic people on the other side, both saying you're with it, you're you're for us or against us. That could be right. kind of a challenge. Both of them are fairly dogmatic, demanding that you pick a side. Yeah, there's no gray area. Yeah, you're either with the infidels or you're with the heathens. <laughs> for us or against us. Yeah. Or, or even better, you know, you're, you're helping the locals and everything, and they happen to take over the area where the portal is, and you got to get, you know, you're trying to get out of there. But now the these crusaders, who a good deal of them were really mercenary cutthroats, looking for something to do. I'm not, I'm not trying to generalize them. Something I know there to do were plenty of good gold and jewels to loot. Yeah, right, right. So a good chunk of them were like that. So here you are. You want to sneak back into the city and get through the French path, but you know you have to see, sneak through an invaded city. Um, and you probably are dressed like one of the locals, so you can blend in with them. So it's, you know, that, that makes for an interesting uh, situation. Actually, you'd be surprised, uh, even though they love painting them all wearing the, the big red cross and the tunic and the chainmail, a lot of times when they got in the area, the Crusaders end up, when they're not wearing their armor, dressed like the locals. That's the clothes that were available, and you could only carry with you what you could carry with you on a horse. Yeah. <laughs> and that stuff got torn and dirty and soiled and... What a GM wants to look for there is a, not just a conflict, but a conflict that the players can resolve, I think. Mm-hmm. One person in the right place or one object in the right place is, is going to settle people down. Because being in the middle of a war like that, your victory condition is getting back through the fringe path with your head on or surviving in a number of combat scenarios. And some people might have fun with that. I don't want to denigrate that, that kind of gaming if that's fun. I personally, I tend to want to do a more goal-oriented type of storytelling adventure. There's also the uh, you know, people who get searching for King Solomon's treasures or whatever. Yes, exactly. You can get it before it disappears. Yeah, or you can recover historical artifacts that are missing from Earth Prime, but you may be able to get a trail on them on an alt where time is, has not advanced as far. Listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. The other area I was looking at was India. Okay. 
India, if anything, is more of the same kind of a thing as the Persian zone during this time period. Uh, what we have is uh, we have th- uh, three major religions rolling through here, rolling through India at the same time. We've got Hinduism, we've got Buddhism, and Islam moving into the north part of the country. Uh, Islam, like the Greeks uh, sometime before this, wanted to conquer the whole subcontinent and never made that big a dent in it. With India, point at Wikipedia as the GM's best friend, it was heavily populated, heavily built up, and there were so many different kingdoms. I think you could drive yourself crazy trying to just name them all. These are dynasties that conquered and held empires. Again, an empire as a group of conquered lands and kingdoms. The Guptas, Vaka Takas, the Harsha of of Vardhana, he ruled the Gangetic Plains for a while. Vishnu Kundinas, the Matrakas, the Rajput, they're interesting guys. I'm going to come back around to them. The Gujara uh, Prataharas, the Solankis, the Paramaras, and the Chauhans. And those are just people who ruled new multiple kingdoms on the Indian subcontinent during the period from 500 AD to 1000 AD. And none of them owned the whole thing. There were places that were independent of them the whole time. So you want to get a postage stamp kingdom reminiscent of any given fairy tale with a palace and a king and a vault full of gold, go to India. There's plenty of space to put fictional ones in there. The culture of India is really tied in with their caste system. Early in this time period, the idea of castes is more fluid. There's more social mobility. But as time goes on, they become more and more rigid and more and more hereditary. Early on, the idea is people will tell you what their caste is by their character and actions. And then you kind of name them into their caste and they do things that are appropriate to their caste. Uh, later on in this period of time, case is something you're born into, and that limits uh, the jobs that are available to you. Each case has its own specific set of jobs and your social status. There's everything from untouchables all the way up to ruling castes, uh, people who are royalty or warlords. The Rajput are a group of nobles and warlords, and they're called a clan or a family, but towards the end of this period, they're actually a caste. You're born as a Rajput. And these people are warlords who had numerous kingdoms and tried to take over the whole of India and didn't quite make it and then faded into history. I think they're probably survivors. There's probably people who are of the Rajput descent in India even now. But the uh, British colonization in the 1850s kind of altered the spin on the whole thing. But that's kind of outside of our our zone right now. What seems to me that limiting who rules to various castes kind of allows people in the agricultural caste, the peasants and the working class people, to kind of opt out of these wars of dynasty. So, yes, there's a link posted right now, Wikipedia, the case of India. Modern castes have about 15 or 16 different entries, all the way from the top to the bottom. The older historical case started out with like four or five because somebody who's a farmer case who owns a farm has no possibility whatsoever conquering anything. He gets to sit out with the Rajputs come together and fight each other. And so I think this leaves a lot of the infrastructure and a lot of the people intact. Well, who was the king at any given time changed hands among a select group 
of people of that social class. So is the untouchable case one of the oldest case then? I did not actually do a lot of research on the case. We get into social class as an issue. Now, if you're adventuring in medieval India, you're going to kind of want to put this in here and talk about it because it's part of the character of the place and it's part of uh, what makes it not the same as Earth. Mm -hmm. This is what lets your players know they're not in Kansas anymore. Yeah, and if those of you who don't know what untouchables are, these are the people who are at the bottom of the social scale. They did things such as dispose of corp- corpses. Yes. They handled sewage, night soil. The term untouchable was quite literal. You didn't want them to touch you. They were dealing with things that could give you horrible diseases. Yeah. That kind of ratcheted them down onto the bottom of society. But they were necessary. Somebody who said, get all these untouchables out of here would be drowning in his own sewage pretty quick. Also, don't right. they deal with things like uh, uh, tan, you know, making leather and so forth? Mm. It was a different class, a different ca- case. So, yeah, you have this case system. I think that stabilizes a lot of the Indian infrastructure and allows what looks to be a very chaotic history to be actually relatively smooth. You'll have uh, different noble case people slaughtering each other left and right, while the uh, farming case people just go about their lives and, and pay off their taxes to whoever is the boss this week. There are so many different kingdoms and empires in India, you go insane trying to track them all. The GM has a good opportunity to be able to make up and plant his own characters and own kingdom. Because all he has to do is elbow side another little postage stamp in in the middle of all this. The names are kind of difficult to get right in the Indian culture. I think it's a good thing to do, though, because it helps with the feel and the image of the place. They have a lot of cultural influences coming down from the Himalayan mountains. The first that we can really track is uh, Alexander the Great and the Greeks. So you have this kind of Greek Grecian-Indian admixture in the north of India. And the north of India is where all the conquerors come from. I don't know why nobody tried to conquer India by the sea, but apparently they didn't. They all came through the Himalayas. After the Grecians fall over and go away and leave their mark on India, then you have Islam coming in. Okay. Now, by the time they were getting over the Khyber Pass and down through the mountains and, and into India itself, they were pretty overstretched, so they didn't have the punch that these guys did going through Persia, going through uh, Turkey, or going through Egypt. They never really conquered a huge part of the continent, but they conquered a lot of people in the north. That conquest is why today Pakistan exists and is an Islamic country. I don't know from the 580 to 1080 how violent the Hindu versus Islam was, as opposed to Islamic people coming in and saying, we're the rulers now. And the Indian case going, yeah, yeah, the guys you kill about that are over here. They're the ones wearing all the gold jewels. We marked them for you. Thank you. There was quite a bit of converting people to Islam. There are three huge religions rolling through here, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam. Okay. Now, Islam is quite firm about being Islam and nothing else. Hinduism is not so firm. You can be a Hindu Christian or a Hindu Islam. Hinduism does not mind. Same with Buddhism. 
although the ideas underlying Buddhism are not the same. I would have to do some research because to me, the idea of a Buddhist warlord just seems self-contradictory. But there were Buddhist warlords in the northeast of India before Hinduism had kind of a resurgence, and you stopped seeing Buddhist kings and, and warlords. Jay, about the caste system. Yes, sir. I'm sure that would bring about all sorts of political adventures for the IDET explorers because they're having to deal with dealing in between the various caste systems. I think there was a warrior caste, a trade caste, a noble caste, and then the untouchables. The jobs, as you say, were kind of distributed among the castes, but it was not nearly that clean cut. Okay. If if you look at the Wikipedia article, uh, you can see... The phrase Hindu caste system conflates two entirely different concepts, the Varna class group theoretical scheme based on idealized Brahminical traditions and the Jati system present present throughout Indian society since historical times. I'm just saying that there could be a lot of adventures in 5th to 11th century India Mm -hmm. based on inter-caste politics because you could have this caste – dealing with that cast, and the fringe where they would have to be doing, you know, tap dancing in the minefield to make sure that they don't cheese off one of the other casts. And, of course, if they bump into an untouchable, that could open a whole new can of worms because it's another one of those societal faux pas that especially a first contact team would come across. Now, also consider this, too, that when they're searching for the first fringe worthy, what places are they going to go to? You know, they're going to go to Hong Kong. They're going to go to Mumbai. Yeah, cities that are huge and have a, a lot of people. And if you get, like, three or four fringery from Mumbai, and now they're going to a, a, a ancient India. Well, you might have some intra-party conflict in that case. We want to pose as Vashaya, m- merchants of traders, so we can move around and interact with people on a on a commercial basis and not have to get involved into wars or, or political conflicts. Now, if the party is trying to fake all being a, an appropriate caste to move around a trade, and someone inside the party says, you're not allowed to do that, you're from the untouchable caste. <laughs> you know, you're, you're not allowed to fake being a higher caste. That's wrong. You could have that kind of situation, or you could have a situation where the player characters just walk in and say, hey, I'm a guy from the fringe. And some Indian person says, yes, but what caste are you? I need to know to interact with you properly. And they say, um, Ohio. (laughs) You see what I mean? (laughs) You could have a conflict where uh, the PCs don't know how to apply the case system to themselves to facilitate interaction with the Indian culture or where the Indian culture says, well, fine, you're untouchable then. Get out of here. Yeah. In modern India, there are those who basically say, I am not of any case. I'm, you know, they're trying to break out of the case system. So say one of those folks is one of those reformers, and he says, you know, I can probably do a better job now to help break this stuff up than I could in the, so, in the present. So how do they treat travelers during this time? I mean, what, what is the, you know, the integration from people from, from the outside world during this period in time? I have no idea, okay. but I'm going to okay. imagine that along the coasts and along the rivers, they're going to see sailing ships from both China and the Arabian areas. 
and the Persian right. areas because we're seeing lots of trade going on between those people. So they right because they have Indian have spices to, coming in. Yes. Yep. They have to have some sort of cultural mechanism for dealing with somebody who's not from around here. Say, I think there'd be one or two options based realistically. One, what is your occupation? Fine, you apply to this task. Two, you don't, you're not a part of our society, therefore you're not part of the caste system. You get a pass. I would think in a trade city they would they would have an already built in, not from around here mechanism. Yeah. So they, they would be familiar with strangers who don't think like they do. Although, Jay, it would be interesting to have the IDET team, because of their occupations in their life, have them put in different caste systems, and all of a sudden they're having to sneak around just to keep in contact with each other. Let's say you had a guy who ended up, because of whatever he did or whatever, he's in the untouchable caste. Yeah, I mean, a somebody who's who's doing, uh, say, a a, uh, a forensics role on a dead body to find out what killed him suddenly yeah. puts himself in a position of being untouchable because he's dealing with a dead body. Right. That could complicate things. Yeah. Complicate things pretty bad. But let's say you all of your characters, because of what they do, and you use the okay, this is what you did. You're in this cast by our societal rules. All of a sudden, the party can't con can't be together or they have to sneak around in order to just interact because of this caste system. And that could, you know, bring up some very interesting role playing because you've got to sit there and try to circumvent the system just to keep, you know, so you don't split the party. Mm-hmm. I could see that in a sort of scene where, again, you're doing a social-based role playing where you're trying to influence a local prince or king to be friendly to IDET yes. so they can set up a presence in his kingdom and interact in ways that IDET wants to. So, yeah, I mean, otherwise they just say, well, uh, we're going back to the gate, talk to you later, you know. You know, another example of, of something you could do for an adventure, the party shows up and, you know, they're making good relations and, and they're making friends with the, the ruling body of the area. And, you know, he calls them aside and he says, you know, I, I, I see you as brothers, blah, 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 blah. He's making friends with them. And he says, and I need something from you. And what he does is he winds up utilizing the party because they can do things that he can't do or have done because it'll trace it back to him, but you guys are foreigners, like complete foreigners. So it's yeah. something you could do, and if you fail the mission or you screw up or you kill the wrong person or whatever, it won't he be right back to him. Yeah, he can say, yeah. I don't know who they are. Yeah, Plausible and- deniability is not a modern thing. <laughs> right. It, it goes across caste boundaries. <laughs> right. Yes, so, that, so that's a good uh, adventure uh, idea right there. Yes, it is. I like what you're saying in that in a situation like India, it might be required for you as a group to uh, uh, to succeed in the mission to find yourselves in those casts. I mean, you act like somehow it happens accidentally. It may be that you have to do it intentionally in order to reach the people that you need to reach. That creates a very powerful planning mechanism where people actually get to say, okay, I'm going to be noble. I'm going to become the, the guy who is the the untouchable, so that we can go ahead and do this. Or it could be just the opposite, where you have the person who is the most unknowable person is the one who ends up getting put into <laughs> certain positions because that's the way that the culture will see them. And he or she is the only one who has the skills that are required to be that role. Yes, you, fish, get out of the water. There's also two other issues that I think would make for good good adventure seeds. One is Indiana J- Jones and the, the Temple of Doom. That supposedly happened in India. 
you could run the thuggy cult, the assassins, the hashishim. These are guys who smoked a lot of hash and decided they were going to be great assassins, and they did, in fact, kill a number of notable rulers and scared everybody. Their fortress was supposedly up on top of a high mountain on an isolated peak with a narrow path that you had to be very ninja-like to get through without getting killed, unless you were one of their guys. So if you, you wanted to uh, do a uh, more of a classical adventure, invade the, uh, invade the assassin hideout and take out the assassin, there's also issues of crypto-archaeology. Crypto-archaeology is a type of archaeology which uh, takes a more um, mystical or non-conventional view of archaeology. Think Eric Von Daniken. Uh, uh, Eric Von Daniken was kind of uh, a start of it. What I'm thinking of is crypto-archaeology that suggests that India may have had a literate culture in it for far longer than we suspect, perhaps as long as 10,000 years. Modern archaeologists kind of discount this idea. It's, it's along with the idea that the Sphinx is also similarly uh, past ancient. And the Vedadaya, the core writings of Hinduism, say that in the time before writing started, it was very cold and hard to survive. So some people wonder that that doesn't mean that the oral traditions that became Hinduism didn't start during the Ice Age. So they may have been doing uh, Hinduism for a lot longer than uh, we give them credit for. And they may have ancient temples or ancient repositories of artifacts just waiting for somebody to go and dig them up. Who knows? I think a mix of Wikipedia and Weekly World News, and boy, you're into some adventure. There's a lot of wealth on the Indian subcontinent. They had spices that you didn't find anywhere else until much later, until mm -hmm. uh, the technology arrived to build greenhouses to be able to grow certain plants. Uh, there was lots of gold, lots of jewels, lots of lots of other stuff around, as well as the usual Indian transpositions of dire poverty right next to incredible wealth. Social injustice next to people who worked hard to be as sympathetic and empathetic as possibly could be. In a society where charity is voluntary, you're going to have that. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of room for adventures and for GMs to uh, go ahead and carve a spot and put what they want down on the Indian subcontinent. There's, it's just an incredible zone for stories, and our Western culture hasn't really uptaken a lot of their mythology yet. And so it's a it's a fertile field for the GM to go rampage and and grab whatever it's not nailed down. There are several comics that were put out recently, and I think uh, the guy Deepak Chopra, which I personally am not a fan of, but he uh, got together with some artists, and they've been doing some really nice graphic novels and comics with cool. Indian heroes and mythology. And now they've modernized them, so you've got like these Indian, they're kind of superhero-ish, but they're really kind of deities and, and, and demi, you know, like demigods type people, but they're kind of like superheroes in the comics. So it will give you some insight to some of the really kind of cool, logical flavor of India. And the, these are comics that, that have been out in the last like two or three years. You should still be able to pick them up fairly easily. I look forward to, to finding some of those and reading them. Yeah, if, if, Sounds pretty if cool. You, if you Google uh, Deepak Chopra and you know graphic novel, it, you'll find it. Okay, Deepak Chopra is not not necessarily a popular guy among the skeptical community. No, but, he is uh, he is not, and I'm not a fan of him. But but uh, uh, he did put together some good comics. <laughs> yeah, as far as mythology goes, hey, woot, knock yourself out. The Hindu religion has a lot of assumptions that are really strange to people from the West. 
uh, especially those of us who were influenced growing up perhaps by the Abrahamic religions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. They kind of have a cultural willingness to accept people who uh, claim to be in touch with their gods or be avatars of gods or embodiment of gods. And that might even be true if you're running that kind of alternate. And in that case, you're opening up a realm where you may run into uh, yogis and spiritual masters who have supernatural powers if you're running that sort of an alt. Well, yeah, they're they're just a bunch of fakers. (laughs) 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 Sorry. A-K-I-R-S. How long have we been waiting to spring that one? (laughs) I don't know. Like I had said about Africa, India has the incredible mythos and... Yes. If you wanted yes. to have an FX campaign, as D20 Modern calls it, yes, the Indian um, culture gives plenty of room for that, too. Yes, yes, yes. And so, uh, really, all I've done is, is done a brief overview, kind of a brief kind of summary to tell a GM there is a huge pile of stuff here. There's, there's a room there with huge treasure boxes. Go run play. I really haven't done a survey of if there's anybody who went out and looked at uh, the influence of Hollywood and Bollywood outside of of our respective spheres. But I think a GM who is willing to subject himself to a Bollywood movie with an open mind might be able to inflict some things on his players that would damage their psyches forever. And that's always fun. And the movie I was talking about is called Sita Sings the Blues. She's taking stories straight out of the Hindu mythology, watch the various bits are available online and is there anything uh, else you want to summarize uh, there, uh, Jay? History is not copyrighted. Go steal it, grab it, run, have fun. Thank you again for joining us for the Fringeworthy Podcast. We'll be back next week, not with this particular subject, but we'll be continuing in the future as more and more of these cultures are examined and shown as great places to adventure in the far past. So until next week, remember, this is Bruce Sheffer telling you that there's million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. This is John Ryer. Remember, history is a different country. People do things differently there. This is Blix. Scimitars speak louder than words. And this is Trav, mixing gaming, comedy, music, and snark weekly on DementiaRadio.org. Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. And this is Jay. History is not copyrighted. Go steal it, grab it, run, have fun.